Hello and welcome back to Pulp Today. I started the series with Dad, with the Tall Dolores, his first novel, and uh, I thought it'd be nice to continue on with uh, one of his. Also thinking about this apocalyptic season we're in, so I decided on something apocalyptic and written by my dad. The novelization of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, this is the first edition, went into a few printings. Uh, first thing that comes to mind when you see that cover should be that Charlton Heston did not sign his license release image contract. So what you get instead is Linda Harrison, the producer's girlfriend, and some, uh, some extras in eight masks. Uh, same thing for number two, uh, second edition, apes. No actual uh, human actors. I'm surprised James Franciscus wasn't worth throwing a nickel to, but uh, no, apparently not. Uh, oh, and I ha also f I found on eBay years and years later, uh, that book's from 1970, uh, German edition, Rucker zum Planet der Affen by Michael Avalone. Once again, no Charlton Heston. He was over uh, this bullshit. What's a novelization? A novelization is when they send you a screenplay for an upcoming movie and you write a book based on the screenplay. Sometimes you have not seen the movie. That's actually more common than you might think. Uh, that's not to be confused with a TV tie-in, which is where you get to see maybe the pilot episode, maybe you read a pilot script episode, and um, you write a book about the characters. Dad did a bunch of those. Hawaii Five-O, Mannix, and famously the Partridge Family, which sold crazy well. Owning a good royalty on something with Susan Day or David Cassidy's picture on it in the early 70s was a good business. From my library, I noticed the, uh, the second edition copy that I have is one that Dad signed to me in August 9th, 1980. And it says, OB Dave. It's a Star Wars reference. For all lovers of Chewbacca types everywhere. Kerchak. XXXXXMA. Uh, Kerchak is the great ape from Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes. A lot of times when my father and I would speak to one another in front of people, I had to footnote him so people had any idea what we were talking about. So, novelization Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'll read from the first edition. One of the real challenges of a novelization is not everything translates well. Uh, not everything that is in a script makes sense on the page. And I actually looked this up last night. The, uh, the screenplay for Beneath the Planet of the Apes, but not the movie, opens with narration. A spoken narration that's supposed to be on the soundtrack while you're seeing Charlton Heston in the end sequence, which they repeated, from Planet of the Apes. Dad took a really interesting and I think fairly novel approach to that adaptation. A lot of writers, I think most writers, would have just taken the narration and made that a little prologue before chapter one and not tried to work it into a novel. Instead, he went whole hog with the imagery of uh, the post-apocalyptic Earth. And instead, he, he introduces this idea that there's a... Uh, that the wind is speaking with the capital W. 
the wind is providing the backstory and the narration. I love this first chapter. Chapter one is Genesis. If you've seen the movie, you will be familiar with the fact that chapter 15 is Armageddon. Here's the first chapter of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, written by Michael Avalone, adapted from the screenplay by Paul Dane, story by Paul Dane and Mort Abrams. Wasteland. Total, glaring, absolute. Stark, terrible. Nothing growing. Nothing moving. Ageless, perpetual silence. Eternal solitude. Only the piercing whine of the dry, nameless wind blowing in from a distantly heard sea. Desolation. A universe of nakedness and nil. Utter, supreme, everlasting. Nothing of life. Only the unrelenting, deathly stillness. The infinity of zero. Emptiness. Nothingness. This is the planet where man has lost his supreme position in the scheme of things. Listen to the wind. If it could speak, it would tell you of Taylor, the man, the scientist, the space explorer. The scorching, chilling breath of the wind's passage would carry the terrible tale to the walls of infinity, down the endless corridors of that vast timelessness which seems to be the core of the land itself. Listen, the wind. This is the truth eternal. Whatever thinks can speak, and whatever speaks can murder. But what is there to murder in this dead place? There is no answer for the wind. When the astronaut, Taylor, came first among us from a voyage in outermost space, he perceived that his ship had passed through a fold in the fourth dimension, which is time. And Taylor knew that he was older than when his journey had begun by two thousand years and ten. The wind whines higher and louder, scoring eagerly over a dead landscape. Weird lambent lights suffuse the terrain. There is vast, unearthly brilliance invested in a panorama of nothingness. But in the first days he did not know the name of the planet on which he had set foot, where apes risen to great estate had acquired the power of tongues, while man, fallen from his zenith to become a beast of the earth, had lost the means of speech and was dumb. The dead sands remained unmoving. The wind prowled over the monolithic expanse of desert-like desolation and isolation. The unknown lights bathed the wasteland with a dull, inflexible glow. Now, Taylor hated war, and since man had made war upon himself, murdered himself over and over again, ever since the first town was built and burned and bloodied, Taylor believed that the race of man was hopeless. A dead sea. Dead like the dead land. The wind stole quietly over the still, stagnant, murky waters. Yet the great apes were hardly better. They put Taylor in a cage as they had once been caged. When he and his woman escaped from the city of the apes into the wilderness called the Forbidden Zone, he found a desert land of rock and stone, barren, unfruitful, devoid of life, and eternally laid waste by man's vilest war in man's history. And in this wilderness, Taylor set eyes upon the statue. The statue with spikes. A stone lady gazing out over the limitless, endless acres of sand oblivious to the mean waves lapping at her copper-lined bosom, a colossus with upstretched arm, bearing aloft a torch that had lost all its meaning, all its truth, all its light, a long-dead lady of stone eyes, stone ears, and stone senses, whose only companion for an eon had been the wind. And Taylor knew he was back on earth, an earth defiled and destroyed by the hand of man. Set this down, whatever speaks, 
can murder. And Taylor, sliding down from the back of his horse, with the savage woman Nova also dismounting, staggered toward the gigantic spikes upthrusting from the cruel sand and blurted his cry of agony to the unheeding skies all around them. God damn you all to hell! Falling to his torn knees, he buried his head in his hands. Sobs racked his tall, magnificent figure. Nova watched and listened in dumb incomprehension. The dead landscape remained mute. The Statue of Liberty could not hear Taylor weeping. The stone has no heart or soul. It doesn't even hear the wind. That is the first chapter of Beneath the Planet of the Apes by Michael Avalone, and I'm sorry, that's pretty great stuff. It really creates a mood that I think the movie itself <laughs> fails kind of completely to create through its entire uh, running time. I remember my father took me to see the movie when I was five, because that's how old I was when it came out. And I got to tell you, that is not a movie for a five-year-old. Apes on horseback, it's uh, the mutants with their, it's horrible, and it gave me nightmares. And I was thinking about this recently, and I, I hadn't thought about this in probably 50 years, literally, I remember after Planet of the Apes, my parents, <laughs> beneath the Planet of the Apes, my parents took me to a toy store and bought me a fire truck with a little toy soldier fireman. And I remember going home and playing with the truck and still having like flash nightmare imagery from the film. But I'm pretty sure I got that truck, probably because I was so upset by the movie and they realized, wow, what were we thinking, taking a kid to something that I can honestly say is the most nihilist big studio franchise movie anyone has made or ever made and why let's do the last chapter because it ties up nicely and it's very short some of this narration did actually make it into the final film read by the amazing paul freeze who i will not attempt to imitate so taylor activates the doomsday bomb in the book he does it by accident in the movie it's intentional that i don't know at what point in the making of the film that was uh, decided upon might have been charlton heston giving one last fuck you to the producers but uh chapter 15 armageddon listen if you have the ears to hear the wind is speaking again the universe at present contains billions upon billions of spiral galaxies in one of them one-third from the edge is a medium-sized star only a small blackened wisp, if you have the eyes to see it or the heart to care, and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, blank white glaring, is now dead. Silence. There is nothing more. There is nothing left. It is as it was in the beginning. Wasteland. Fantastic stuff. One more very nice story about that. I've met a lot of people over the years who this book meant a lot to them. They got it through, I think it was available through the Scholastic Book Service, so people bought it at school, people from my generation and a little older than my generation. And uh, in 95, I was editing my first feature film as an editor. The director was a nice guy named uh, George Saunders, and he had written the film. And we got to talking and uh, just making conversation. I said, uh, how long have you been writing, George? What... Uh, when did you start writing? And he said, well, this is embarrassing, but I was inspired to become a writer by a book I read when I was a little kid. 
uh, I mean, it's goofy. It was a novelization of a of a movie, but it was just written in such a stylish stick way and such a it really showed me that a writer could have a voice and i i think i kind of saw what was coming and i said what was what was the book george and he said uh beneath the planet of the apes and i said go over to my uh go over to my shelf under the a's and you'll find a copy of it and he said oh you have it too you must love it too and he looked closely at the spine and said oh is this a, a relative of yours and i said yeah a very very close relative so that's this week's Pulp Today. Uh, I haven't done any on-camera drinking. I even, in honor of Taylor, even though it's not an ANSA mug, it's a NASA mug, I made a very nice coffee and vodka thing that I'm drinking. It's got kind of a mocha thing in it. It's got some uh, Kahlua. It's delicious. I will continue after I wrap this up. But anyway, thanks for coming back. Next time, I'm, I'm building up the, the, the fortitude to dress myself in a tuxedo so I can read you a little Ian Fleming, maybe. But until then, thanks, and see you next time. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.